let's get started. All right, Patrick, let's do it. Patrick Beeman, thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I um, I love having conversations, and I've heard a lot about you from Randy, uh, who could be considered a, potentially a mentor for us both. Definitely. Maybe. Uh, yeah. Whatever you want to call it. It's funny you mentioned that because I was just reading something on calling people mentors or whatever you want to frame it as, and usually it's just a good friend in your life, yeah. someone who just gives you the right opportunities, gives you advice, someone who you would just go out and have breakfast with. So reframing that, it's like, yeah, I guess he's kind of a mentor, but it's also like he's just a fun guy to hang out with and talk yeah. shop with. Yeah, he told me he was um, that he was invited on this uh, podcast as well. Yeah, and declined the offer. He's gonna come. He's I gonna said, come on, dude. You own the studio that yeah. we're recording in. You, <laughs> you, you have to. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. I totally agree, man. But, but, uh, but yeah, and um, thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, it. I'm glad to have an actual conversation with you. I know we've exchanged some words about uh, technical production yeah. and um, equipment and stuff and this room um, but otherwise I've heard good things about you I, you just got married for instance I just got married man and I'm excited to get into a conversation about fatherhood and marriage with you because you not only are an OBGYN you run a podcasting studio media all that stuff and you're also a father of five children that's Dude, that's a lot on your plate. How do you handle it all? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I do. Mm. Um, you know, uh, today I uh, woke up. You know, there were bad storms last night. Yeah. My basement flooded pretty oh, bad. Shit. First time ever. Um, it was like two, three inches of water, entire basement. So, Do you want to uh, put the mic just like a little further in front of your face? It just sounds a little distant. Here? Or like... Uh, this way does that make sense so pulling it pulling it closer to me like yeah oh there we go yeah there we go oh, that's much better oh, beautiful okay it's much better <sighs> i look like an amateur <laughs> um yeah so um not only those things but then you know other life things happen to us all and uh, yeah I, I don't know how i, I handle it all um <laughs> i i've always had a lot of different interests um in my mind they're connected <laughs> uh usually if i'm trying to explain like what i do somebody asks you know what do you do for a living i'm like huh ah, it kind of depends on the context yeah right so one of my happy places as they say is to go to like a bar have a beer open up my laptop and write um, nowadays that's more writing emails mm. um, and depending on the conversations around me if I get pulled in uh, if I say oh I'm an addiction medicine physician or I'm an OBGYN or I run a media company lots of different responses so it kind of depends on what I'm in the mood for mm. um, but I've, I've been blessed I have you know I had excellent parents and I have a lot of people um, that help me uh, in terms of, you know, at least adequately meeting my obligations in, in these various realms. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Cool, man. So I don't really know how to answer that, honestly. Cause, yeah. Uh, today, like, I'm just like, uh, I can't handle this. Yeah. To be honest, <laughs> like, I, the the basement thing, like, I mean, between calling the IRS yesterday and it being like two and a half hours to resolve my problem. Yeah. Like in total conversation and hold time which, you know, it was an interruption in my plans. And then the basement flooding, I'm just like, <sighs> I gotta simplify my life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I always think about that too, because I'm very similar, obviously a little bit younger than you. And obviously, uh, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, um, yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of time to build a lot of the stuff that you're doing. And sometimes I get a little overwhelmed with everything I have on my plate. And it's nice to hear someone who I, I look up to or see someone who I'm like, oh, I want to aspire to kind of live that way of life, right? Like have a family, do all these other hobbies, juggle all this stuff and realize that they still get overwhelmed and don't really know how to handle just everyday life situations. Like you got to call the IRS or like you said, the basement flooded. That shit sucks. I hate doing like dealing with that <sighs> stuff. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Cause I have my plans and I yeah. want to do things my way. Right. And that's not always the best attitude to have. Honestly, if I cling to that too much, I think my life tends to go worse Yeah. because so much is outside of our control. Um, and I, you know, like I said, I, I practice addiction medicine and, you know, part of the 12 steps is, you know, giving yourself up to mm -hmm. a higher power right after you admit you have a problem. And I think that's a good life plan in general um, for anyone. You know, if your problem is getting overwhelmed by looking too far into the future, uh, sometimes you have to give up, you know, looking too far in the future and give up your desires or goals plans to a certain extent to um, others who are not you um, and you know man is a, a social animal like in Aristotelian uh, philosophy that's a big concept and I think it rings true you know throughout history people say things like no man is an island like mm. John Donne's poem um, and certainly you know, existing or trying to exist alone and do everything on your own usually doesn't work out. Usually you get crushed under the weight of all the, you know, the things that could happen in life. And yeah. So you got to surround yourself with the right people. Um, on the subject of fatherhood, <laughs> responsible parenthood, um, got to pick the right partner, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, somebody that that you you mesh with in terms of like the big goals somebody that you know you're excited about supporting uh what she wants to do in life and she's excited about supporting what you want to do in life and then you have this whole thing together yeah where you're you know you develop a common mission as a as a married couple and for most of us that ends up issuing into like a whole other person you know yeah um so yeah so when are you gonna have kids oh shit man <laughs> also it's, not entirely within your control exactly uh, yeah you never know what can happen so i'm very 
open to the idea of whenever it happens, it happens. Yeah. But if I had to put a specific timeline on it, I definitely want to wait a good three to four years. And I think there's a plethora of reasons behind that. Number one, building a business and making sure that I'm doing something that I truly love before I bring a child into this world. I I know how much effort and time that takes and I don't want to be wasting that, that energy that I could be giving to my child. You know what I mean? So in that regard, definitely want to make sure I'm building my business first. And then second, building myself first. I think having kids is such a big responsibility and to really make sure I give them the proper foundation. I need to have the proper foundation and uh, not to say I had a bad childhood or anything like that. I think my parents did great. They obviously gave me so much love and support and was able to go to college and do all the things I'm doing now because of a lot of what they instilled in me at a young age. Yeah. But there's still a lot of things that, you know, I, I think the, the word trauma is used quite a bit. Um, and it has a negative connotation to it, but I think it's just things I've learned. Right. So conditioning, I guess you can call it that I want to dive into a little bit more and really make sure I'm intentional with all my actions and behaviors. So when I do have a kid, they can look at me as a proper example for how to live life instead of me just running on instinct and, you know, doing things that I may, I may not even know I'm doing. So I really want to gain that awareness. And then that's the first step, right? Is, is have that self-awareness and then change the things that I'm able to change. So I'm, I'm the best parent I can be. I don't think it's going to be perfect by any means. I'm sure you can attest to that as well. That is correct. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, um, and, and obviously there's a biological clock on there as well. So yeah, probably three to four years if I had to answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely a component, you know, unintentionally having kids is a route that a lot of people take. And, um, in one sense, there's never a good time to have kids. Yeah. Um, and in another sense, it's always a good time because unless you're like a shitty person, I guess you could say, um, having a, a, the experience of having a child is so um, rewarding and it brings back like some of those feelings most of us have, um, not everyone, some people aren't blessed in this way, but those feelings of like wonder at the world, Mm. like reminders, like, so my youngest will be five months um, this week. And my oldest um, just turned 18 last month. Yeah, so like there's quite a spread and and to go to your point about kind of like being ready, working on yourself and yeah. you know, all this stuff. Um, one thing I've noticed with, with this kid is I just feel more present. Mm. Part of it is when my other kids were growing up, I was trying to get in med school right after my daughter was born, the oldest evangeline um and then went to med school had augustine at during second year in med school then silas 
during my residency, which was worse than med school in terms of the the time demands and workload. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, fourth kid, Soren, uh, he was born while I was stationed in St. Louis at Scott Air Force Base while my wife was doing her residency in psychiatry in Cincinnati and my three oldest children were living back here in the Cleveland area with with their mom. Um, That was tough. And so, you know, I had all these, you know, I got to do this for my career. Um, I was, like, writing and publishing a lot of, like, articles, like, popular things, uh, like, while I was in class in med school, like first, second year, <laughs> I'd be like writing articles and submitting them, uh, trying to get them published in magazines. And then I'd come home and I'd be like, I, I got to write this. And um, all of those things, I just, I think I missed out on a lot of what I'm putting as a priority with my youngest. And so, like, I, I come home at the end of the day and I actually have this like excitement. It's it's like a a rejuvenation. It's like a it's re-energizing just to sit there and, and hold this this baby and like try to get him to talk and and say nonsensical yeah. words. I mean I think he has his own language and is actually saying things, just not enunciating very well. Um but I, I'll resist the urge that all parents have to like whip out my phone and be like, "Isn't this the cutest thing you've ever seen?" Because uh, <laughs> it happens. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure from the baby's perspective too. It's like, my God, this phone is just in my face all the time. This is terrible. I feel like the paparazzi's on me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I try not to do it too much too because I feel like um, when we filter our lives through a digital lens. Um, you definitely lose something in terms of the um, experience of the now. Mm. And that is kind of that intentionality and, and being present is kind of what you were alluding to. Yeah. And something that I did not appreciate until, I mean, probably I was like 35. You know, mm. I'm, I'm 38 now. And I have, you know, two specialties I practice. And. I have this, these two companies, um, Ars Longa Media for podcast and media production and uh, Inside the Boards for medical education, like helping medical students prepare for their exams. And so something sometimes has to give. Yeah. And my old self would have put off, I think, the family stuff. I mean, I did, honestly. Sometimes it was of necessity, like in residency work, you know, eight, depending on the residency um, specialty, 80 hours a week, like pretty solid for four years. Uh, lots of 24 hours, some 30-hour shifts when you're in the hospital, and you come home, and then depending on how things went, all you can do is sleep right yeah um so some things were out of my control like that but um nowadays a lot of things don't get done a lot of emails don't get answered a lot of things that i would like to say yes to 
um, I put on the back burner. But I also don't feel that like worked up about it or mm. compelled because I'm like, I'm 38. And so like I, I'm rounding like halfway through. Yeah. And that went really quick. <laughs> so I, I don't want to wake up in 70 years or when I'm age 70 or something mm-hmm. and, and be like another project I, I've got to do. And then. Yeah. I, I'm not investing in, you know, the people around me. Mm. So I love that. Yeah. How much is enough? Right. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, obviously you've spent so long trying to get to the point of where you're at now. You've built all these businesses, built these amazing resources for people to continue their education, to help with addiction. What was that defining moment for you where you said, I need to live more present, more in the present and be okay with not completing everything on my to-do list for today. Was there a a moment in time or was this just something that happened with age? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it wasn't like a, um, St. Augustine in the, uh, Casa garden where, he heard a voice said, tole lege, tole lege, pick it up, read it. And he found like a Bible and he read a passage. He opened randomly. And like from that moment, his life was changed or a uh, St. Paul, like who, you know, the, a lot of the art has him falling off a horse, seeing this light and um, Jesus confronting him and being like, Hey, Paul, or Saul was the name at the time. Why are you persecuting me? Um, it was more of a process, a little bit slower for me. But I think what started it was residency, like about second year of my OBGYN residency, was very tough um, mentally. And I, I, I kind of had a little period where I went crazy. Um, we don't really like to use that term in mental health, but, you know, a lot of, uh, us patients who deal with, um, you know, mental health conditions, um, we say it a lot. So like, I feel like I'm part of that club. So (laughs) hopefully no one takes offense. Um, and a lot of it was due to lack of sleep. Um, that was definitely a, a component. Um, And a lot of the structure and tidiness of my life that I had kind of tried to control myself, like I was alluding to earlier, it just all fell apart. And so I I often say my my first marriage was a casualty of of residency. And and that's true, but um, what the consequence of that was my wife and I ended up separating. She moved up back to Cleveland, our you know hometown, um, had the kids. And so instead of getting to tuck my kids in every night, I had to look at empty beds and really fight to have time with them. And it's, I mean, it's the classic, you don't know what you have until it's gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I went from Dayton, where I did my residency at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, 
station to my active duty commitment in St. Louis. Kids are still up here, and I would drive like eight or nine hours, however long that trip was, um, to see them at least once a month, but it, it was never adequate. And I just, I felt, you know, just like my heart ripping out basically every time I had to drive back. Mm-hmm. And it, it felt like my, my self was split for the four years I was in the, the military. And once I got back to the local area and got to, you know, I was 15 minutes away, 10 minutes away from my kids at this point. That's when I I realized, I think, that I need to change my life. (laughs) Um, And I can do all these things. They may progress like, you know, a video downloading back when, you know, we had 56.6K internet. Um, But it doesn't matter as much as the legacy that I leave to my kids and, and honestly helping them or seeing them do what they want to do in life, complete their mission. And that's, what's cool about being a dad too. Mm. It's like, you know, your, your kid does something awesome and there is no like, Oh man, I wish that was me or you know, yeah. like jealousy. It's like this, it feels even bigger than when you've accomplished something. Mm. So that's cool. I don't, that was kind of long winded. I don't even know if I answered your question. No, I I don't know either. I don't remember my question. So, uh, (laughs) no, I appreciate that, that answer. And it makes a lot of sense in terms of fatherhood. I think it's really challenging for people to recognize the importance of fatherhood and just being a parent in general. When we see, everything being so expensive we see all the downsides of having a kid and and you look in the news it's like why would I want to bring a kid into this world but to me when I look at all those those negative news or negative whatever it's it's more reason to bring a kid in this world it's more reason to make better people and to give them a great foundation and give them morals and values so they can not only pass that on to their kids but they can pass it on to whoever they interact with and it's just more and more people it's spreading out like a web Uh, i think that's a cool way to think about having kids yeah yeah absolutely um i'm i'm a roman catholic and one of the um tasks in in the faith of a lay person is to sanct- sanctify the temporal order. And I just love that phrase. It's like, go out into the world. You know, the world is, in many respects, terrible. Um, you know, I, I see this with addiction in my community, uh, fentanyl addiction, uh, every day. And nevertheless, we're, we are supposed to go out there and you know, do good work and try to bring like hope and just goodness in general into our spheres of influence. Um, and I feel like if you don't have that orientation, there, there really isn't a, anywhere to look moving forward. It's just mm-hmm. like hopeless, like this is never going to get better. 
I'm not going to have children, which is arguably probably the most important task of like somebody with a vocation to, to parenthood or, um, you know, marriage. And, uh, you know, that it's, it's good to hear you, you say that because I, I agree too. I, you know, there, there's definitely financial downsides you could say to having kids, but also that it might be a little short sighted because, you know, when you're like super old and you return to that state of dependence that we come into the world with, you kind of want to have people that <laughs> are going to be around you, want to be around yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. And feel a sense of responsibility for taking you through the end of your life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't really matter how much money you have all that could buy is the nicest retirement home if you become disabled. Um, but does that really matter if you don't have love, yeah. right? Yeah. This is probably a bad analogy, but I'm going to say it anyways. My dad used to tell me this all the time when buying tools, buying furniture, whatever. Long after the price is forgotten, the quality of the product still remains. <laughs> and even though, you know, a kid isn't necessarily a product, it is a good analogy for that because, yes, it's going to be expensive. It's going to be hard work. It's going to take all your time and effort to do it. But it's the most rewarding thing that you could possibly do. I mean, I just got married, like you said, in the beginning back in May. And um, it's funny. I didn't really cry when my wife walked down the aisle was more just like giggly, like, Oh my God, like there she is. You know, she looks so good, that type of thing. But the one time I did start to like shed a tear is when my dad gave his speech at the reception and it was like, Oh my God. He, he goes, what did he say? He, he says something like watching you grow up was the most, you know, important thing in my life. And just that statement was like, Oh my God, man, that means so much to me. And I hope I make you proud. And it was just one of those moments and Oh my God, I'll never forget it. And I hope I get to have that, you know, with my kids someday too. Yeah. I hope that I can get through those types of speeches. <laughs> Cause in my daughter's 18th, uh, the birthday, uh, like celebration or, or graduation party really. Um, it was just like tough for me. There was, I was happy. Yeah. Like, like, whoa, she made it, you know? Um, she got through despite me. Yeah. Um, but like, there was this sense of also like loss, um, mm -hmm. and, and sadness because it's like this part of my life is s sort of coming to an end. Now, granted, Unlike a lot of people, I'm spacing it out like by <laughs> 18 years, assuming you don't have other children. Um, but but the that that sense of pride with with kids, like I I just it it is really like motivating. Um, it is encouraging, and it's something that should be leaned into. And I wish I had much earlier. I may not have done as much cool stuff career-wise but I think that I would have um, been prouder of the choices I made mm -hmm. uh, and uh, probably a less selfish 
human being because having kids definitely forces selflessness upon you like it's really hard to be super selfish and meet your obligations as a parent yeah like you know even basic things like sleep like you you don't get to, to have control over sleep once you bring a kid into the world unless you're like super lucky yeah they're just a big sleeper yeah yeah yeah, exactly Mm. um but yeah you should think about it you should definitely trust me we've been talking about it quite a bit try to have a kid you you you'd like it you you seem you seem like you would uh enjoy it and probably be good at it from you know the 45 total minutes we've ever (laughs) interacted and some things randy said yeah yeah no i appreciate it man so growing up for you you said you've had a lot of interest. Were those always around or did it take a while for you to go, okay, I want to do this, that I want to be a doctor here. (laughs) Um, so I went to kindergarten and half of first grade and then I was homeschooled, Mm. um, because we moved in the middle of, of the academic year, um, to Toledo, Uh, been all around. I've traveled all throughout Ohio. Um, (laughs) and when I was 15, I went to Lorraine County Community College, like half an hour from here, um, took advantage of their like program for high school age people. Um, and the second semester I had a philosophy class, just intro to philosophy. I wanted to be a rock star. I was like a, a worship leader. I'd taken guitar lessons for nine years, like classical guitar. And, you know, I wanted to rock out. Um, and my dad was in uh, Christian radio, actually, and that wow. whole business. So, like, he would take me to, you know, concerts or pick up artists from the, the airport. And, you know, that, that was so cool. That philosophy class did change my life, and it changed my life because, and and this is pretty classic, but, you know, Socrates said, or Plato wrote, that the unexamined life is not worth living. And that kind of caused some existential shock for me, and that is when my adolescent I guess exploration kind of my adolescent rebellion um, began my parents got super lucky because my adolescent rebellion was basically converting to Catholicism (laughs) at 16 Um, I had my like period of uh, dissolute living a little bit later Mm. Um, or (laughs) adolescent bad adolescent choices a little later um but they didn't have responsibility for me at that point so in one sense they got lucky but um i decided that i wanted to study philosophy and just fell in love with like i guess what you would call the intellectual life great Mm. books had this professor dr ed karshner um who kind of took me under his wing and like helped develop my interests. And, and I like began reading voraciously, like, you know, a couple great books a week. It's like all I did. 
and that went on from like 16 until probably when I went to med school. So like a good like six, seven years. And throughout my commitment to philosophy, um, when I was a senior about to be done with my bachelor's degree, I, I saw this dude, Edmund Pellegrino, um, speak at my college. He was a physician. He had dual appointments in the departments of philosophy and internal medicine at Georgetown. Mm. Really cool guy. I mean, I think it's cool. Um, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world, actually, because um, I was going to go get my PhD in philosophy or, or theology um, and uh, just loved the academic life. But he gave this talk about the kind of philosophy of medicine, if you will, you know, and I was also reading a lot of Marx at the time, and not that I agree with the political philosophy of Marx, but one point that his program had is is really focused on action in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I mean, I could be like, Ed Pellegrino, he was even the president of a college at one point uh, uh, at uh, Catholic University of America, like 600 articles he wrote. Um, I mean, it was like this diversity of intellectual stimulation that I just like craved. Um, and I thought I could be like him, I could have philosophy, but I want to help people. This is usually where people start their you know, journey into becoming a doctor mm. um, and hopefully their journey into whatever vocation they adopt. Right. But I ended up taking a like chemistry class. I was homeschooled. Right. So bench science, you know, lab work wasn't really a big thing at home, <laughs> you know, which uh, so it, it was intimidating to me, but I, I actually liked it. Um, medicine is not a science. It is an art that uses science. Um, just disclaimer, I believe that very strongly. I've never heard anyone say that. That is, it makes a lot of sense though. It, yeah, it, it does. And, and that is part of like the, you know, the, the philosophical speculation of, of Dr. Pellegrino, um, often called the father of bioethics. Um, but, uh, ended up taking my bachelor's uh, in philosophy, came back to Cleveland State um, to do a master's in philosophy and complete the pre-medical coursework. So at least 20-ish, 15, 20 years ago, um, you had to take like a year of basic biology, physics, general chem, organic chemistry, English um, to even apply to med school. And did that stuff, um, did a lot of like studying Latin and Aristotle and Kant and Thomas Aquinas, and then taught philosophy for a year at, at Cleveland State and my uh, both alma maters, uh, Cleveland State and LCCC. Um, went to med school and kind of planned a, a career along the lines of Dr. Pellegrino, like I wanted mm -hmm. to be in academics. I was hoping 
I would have like a dual appointment in um, philosophy and some whatever medical school department uh, based on the specialty I chose. Um, and I would, you know, kind of probably focus on bioethics because there's not a lot of people who have like the training in both. And I think a lot gets lost. Like doctors definitely don't consider bioethics as the starting point of what we do as physicians. Can you, can you dive a little deeper into bioethics? Maybe just give a summary yeah. of, of what that means to you. Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at like the moral life or um, ethics in general, uh, to start there, you could say it's like one of the main branches of philosophy that looks at the question of how ought we to live, right? And so when you drill down into more specific areas of, of ethics, like business ethics, like mm -hmm. how do we make, you know, deals um, that are that are good and not exploitative or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, for medicine, it's like how do we practice medicine that comports with the nature of the activity that medicine is, which is a helping profession where you put yourself out there as a, a doctor and say, I am going to do good for this patient, even if it means like some sort of, you know, um, self-sacrifice on, on my part. Um, and I'm going to kind of spend my life to help people in a way that is as good. And so the reflections on the philosophy of medicine, I think some of them are obvious, like, or at least not that controversial. Like, I think most people don't want to have a doctor who's principally a doctor to make money. Right. Right. Like, uh, I think a lot of physicians would practice medicine if they were independently wealthy um, and didn't have to get paid for it because, like, something changes within you throughout medical education. You become something different. Um, so bioethics, to me, is the foundation of what we do as physicians. It's asking the questions about um, what is the right thing for this patient how do i do good for them and how to uh, i how do i avoid doing wrong um it's like the first principle you know first do no harm right. primum non notere um often attributed to hippocrates um the og physician yeah. not yeah. really the og but the hippocratic oath i actually just told one of my 86 year old patients that he was super gung-ho to or patients, clients rather, but he was super gung-ho to get started. And I'm like, listen, above all else, we are going to do no harm. Right. It's just the first thing. It's the, yes. And yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty much generally good advice. Mm -hmm. um, do good, avoid evil. Um, you could think of that as a first principle of all moral action. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, Ed Pellegrino was was the man, and I I got to spend um, two thousand seven through eight as his fellow um, at Georgetown, and I was working on like a 
um, applying um, Karl Wojtyla, who was later um, John Paul II, um, his philosophical work, um, often called the theology of the body, to kind of medical practice. Um, that was a big interest of mine at the at the time. And actually, see, I'm thinking about this because I put my annotated, like heavily annotated copy of all my notes related to that whole period of my life into this collection um, of those those writings. And it was on the floor next to my like chair this morning. And I went down there and it's just completely soaked. And that, that's probably the thing that I'm saddest about losing in the basement. Um, even beyond the router and mesh wireless system, it was a huge pain to set up. Yeah. Um, and some other things, but it yeah. means so much to you. Spend yeah, so much does. time on it. Exactly. Wow. That's tough. And I want to dive a little deeper into the bioethics because you got my brain thinking here. Yeah, let's do it. And something that I think we talked a little bit about before, just the current state of the healthcare system and seeing, <sighs> yeah, right. <laughs> seeing, and I, you know, I saw this and I'll just start off with an example. So we had this doctor in high school who was basically pushing pills to high school kids, high school football players. So any type of injury, tramadol, here you go. Anything any any more serious? All right, Percocet, here you go. And we didn't really see the repercussions until we started noticing, you know, I was a freshman, you know, so like seniors at the time. There were a couple of seniors that really got into drug addiction yeah. and one of them overdosed and died and it turned into this whole thing. And you start to recognize all of these doctors who don't take the time to actually understand the root cause of what's really going on and just say, here's a pill, mask the pain, and you'll be fine. I'm curious your thoughts on that, first and foremost, and how do you think we can combat that and make a switch to stop doing that? Oh, man. I could, like, <laughs> in many respects, addressing this problem is my life's work. Mm. Um, that is a, It's like a unifying concept. So I 100% agree with you. So the... To to speak to doctors like that, um, a few things. One, at least as of a, a couple years ago, the average amount of time in the four years of medical school, all doctors do four years of med, med school, and then they go on to select their specialty, and that's like two years to like seven years. Oh, wow. um, and then sometimes if you do like internal medicine, that's three years, you do a fellowship after that in endocrinology or um, you know, rheumatology or, or, you know, cardiology, another three years. So um, throughout med school, though, the, the basic thing, basically, you learn all this stuff every doctor should know. Two hours is devoted during those four years to specific addiction education. Everybody knows. You can see it. Addiction touches 
every single medical specialty. Like you can lose your vision from doing cocaine. Um, uh, you can, uh, you know, see all sorts of things the radiologist will notice because, you know, a person did this or that drug, smoking, nicotine, like lung problems, right? There, there really isn't a specialty that addiction doesn't touch, and yet we devote two hours to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's getting better. Um, so there's probably a group of people that just didn't know or did not, were not as intentional as they should have been about the prescriptions they were giving. Yeah. Right? Because you want to relieve pain. Um, you can't always, and that's something that both doctors and patients have to, to realize, like sometimes real pain exists and you can't take it away or you can't take it away without causing a bigger problem Mm. like an opioid addiction um and so the other group is people who opened up basically pill mills and had people come in who asked for whatever drug this still happens to a certain degree it's a lot better and they would write these and they did harm right like if you have the genetics for it and there are signs or um you know points of information where you can reasonably you know a, with reasonable certainty say this person probably needs to be super careful with alcohol, opioids, you know, whatever the the drug is. And if if you don't adequately assess someone, y- you could literally be giving them an addiction. Yeah. So, here's an example. 2010 was my first year of OBGYN residency. One of the concepts that was really kind of pushed mid-2000s was this idea of pain is the fifth vital sign, right? So, you know, you got your heart rate, your respiratory rate, and then uh, pain's the fifth vital sign. Um, Well, I mean, pain is not something objective, right? There are people for whom a stimulus that, you know, causes you know something barely noticeable in their brains in their subjective experience that for another person could be excruciating um and because you don't have like a lab test you mean like oh you know your your hemoglobin is 12 your you know pain is five um the tendency was to really prescribe things to relieve pain. So my go-to after, for instance, a C-section, pretty standard was um, 30 days of a Percocet or Vicodin-type drug Mm -hmm. for pain that was unrelieved by ibuprofen or Tylenol or some non-narcotic analgesic uh, pain-relieving drug. 
that has definitely changed. Like I would say that is really looked down on to do as a blanket sort of thing. Some people will, you know, they will require it. Even yeah, C-section is the most common like procedure performed on uh, women. You know, each each year abdominal surgery, um, and it's major surgery and it's a big deal. Um, but not everyone requires, you know, 30 Percocet. And a lot of women, now that I see in the addiction context, when asked, how did you get into opioids? It's, well, I had a C-section and I got a script for Percocet and I realized I kind of like this. Yeah. Right? And you can develop a dependence even on these short-acting, um, less potent opioids within a couple weeks to where um, you have withdrawal symptoms when you stop. And that is essentially, when it's bad, a terrible, severe flu. Um, that's why most people don't just you know, say no once they develop a physical dependence and not physical dependence by itself doesn't mean addiction. Um, but it, it definitely is a hallmark that sets people up for developing an addiction. So I would say that the, the opioid crisis is in some ways a symptom of the faulty systems in healthcare. It is in part due to admitting people to our profession who do not have the moral character mm -hmm. to um, care for patients in a um, you know self-abnegating uh, way. I don't know how to say exactly what I mean here, but um, part of it is is a cultural, you know, kind of uh, zeitgeist, you know, that pain is a fifth vital sign. Everybody gets on board. All of medicine, you don't, you know, you don't want to be like somebody who's really insensitive and be like, oh, you have pain. I think that you should just go to physical therapy and deal with it. Maybe, like, that could be delivered better. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that might be best for someone. Yeah. For a high school athlete, certainly like giving them a bunch of opioids is not usually good. No. Um, and it and it ends in that story. Like in Lorain County where I live, 141 people lost their lives to overdose last year. And so, you know, uh, how many people would you say are in, in like your close family? God, 20, 30, maybe. Okay. That's even seems a little high, you know? Yeah. But even if it's low, yeah. even if it's 10 close family and friends, like for people who've lost someone, what that does to you the rest of your life, especially if you're a child or, yeah. or a parent who loses a child, like that's at least at the very least, like about, 1500 ish people will have a devastating 
you know, change in their life. And it's, it's probably way more, um, you know, a change in their life, a lot, you know, a loss of a person they're not going to be able to say hi to or plan a vacation with or hug or put, you know, put to bed, um, at night in, in some cases, mm. or, you know, just like so much is, is lost and it's senseless and it, pisses me off to a certain extent because I feel like the medical profession does like we we did in a large degree fail patients by just going along with what everyone else was doing um, and and not being judicious about how we use drugs like the pillars of health we probably agree on this nutrition <laughs> exercise sleep, healthy relationships, yep. and, like, a plan for life, yep. right? Like, you can't really be healthy without things like that. Mm -hmm. And that should be our go-to. I mean, it, that's, like, 90% of health. It, like, prevents or fixes most things, yeah. right? Um, there's a lot of uh, depression and anxiety that are, I don't want to say cured, but certainly helped as effectively as some medications with correcting all those things. I have bipolar disorder, and I will tell you, if my sleep is off, that is, and, and for many of us who have bipolar disorder, that's, it, it does things to your brain, um, and so I, I have to ensure that I'm I'm sleeping to a certain extent um, that is adequate yeah right? like that's what happened in, in residency in in large part where um, I became kind of low-level manic um, mm -hmm. had some great ideas yeah and a lot of I feel like my ideas came out of that place but not because of that place. Yeah. Like, they probably would have come out anyways. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, we, we really need to encourage people to to do those things behaviorally that are pillars of health, and we need to get to the root causes of disease when that is possible. Because we know a lot about the human body, but... It's like the more you learn about something, the more you realize you don't know yes. or we oh don't know, right? Yeah. Like like I'm I'm an OBGYN. And in many respects, like there's just tons of questions. I, I definitely don't want to do one off the cuff to be, you know, uh sensitive um cuz it there's a lot of sensitive situations in in obstetrics and, and gynecology. Um, but people will ask questions about women. Um, you know, a lot of dudes specifically that, that I have like an insight into their world that a lot of people don't. Um, but there's a lot of questions that even medically and experientially about you know, being a mom, for instance, uh, pfft, I don't know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I just don't. Yeah. Because I don't have that 
internal experience. You don't have to to be a doctor. Like, you don't have to be a heroin addict to treat people with heroin addiction. Um, but at the same time, I, I know that for the the irregular bleedings or chronic pelvic pain or recurrent pregnancy loss or infertility, there isn't always a discoverable solution. And even if, you know, you get the diagnosis correct, sometimes there isn't an effective treatment. Mm. And that is not what a lot of doctors want to accept and not, you know, certainly no patient wants to have a mystery illness, but there's like well-defined illnesses in textbooks and then there's people mm. who have their own experiences, their own families, they live in a certain place, they have a certain job. There are so many factors yes. that make up a person that pretty much nobody fits into the scientific definition of this disease or whatever. Mm. Um, and so I, I very much believe healthcare, we need to get back to the root cause of illness um, and fighting to figure it out. Like, sometimes you can't. Sometimes that statement doesn't really honestly make sense um, because of the state of our knowledge. Um, but that should be our ideal. Um, actually, I, I joined a practice in January called Veranova Health in Middleburg Heights is our where our first uh, location is. Um, and the the group that I, I joined that was trying to do this um, natural women's health um just like i met met the the president of the board and other board members who wanted like a different way of doing things mm -hmm. and on board with for instance setting up our clinic so we have more time with patients like somebody comes to you and they have significant like bleeding to the point where they're getting anemic, right? Your hemoglobin should be roughly 12, um, and theirs is 7. A lot of women deal with this. If you have about half as much red blood cell oxygen-carrying capacity going to your tissues, like, you're going to be foggy in the brain. You're not going to sleep as well. But also, like, you're going to be super tired you could have heart attacks like there you know there there is a list and one of the solutions for most bleeding issues is to remove the organ that bleeds right mm. that's a big gun though and there's a lot more that can be done before that um my colleagues in conventional medicine um and conventional healthcare systems, that's how I'll put it, because um, I practice evidence-based medicine. Um, but they'll get 20, 30 minutes to talk to somebody who comes and says, I've had this bleeding problem for, you know, maybe it's 10 years wow. sometimes. I have tried all of the, the, the things that people do Nothing is solved. It. I don't even know what's causing it. It's like honestly, not that uncommon. Mm -hmm. 
And so you're definitely seeing a person that you think probably this last resort of surgery is, is where we're headed. Um, 30 minutes to cover all of that, adequately talk to somebody about like what to expect leading up to surgery, after surgery. What are the risks of surgery? What are the other options, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, building trust, certainly, um, but also, like, demonstrating, you know, competence in a plan. Like, you can't do that in 30 minutes adequately. Like, what if somebody has, you know, a sensitive issue, like, like you know, pain with, like, intercourse, right? First off, nobody wants to talk about bowels, bladder stuff, or sexual intercourse, definitely don't want to get examined in a sensitive area. Right. Like, I'm already hoping at 45, which is the age they recommend colonoscopies for routine risk people, that they'll invent something that will help me avoid that by then. <laughs> and I, I, I think I'm hopeful. Um, but, like, you're in that, like, vulnerable state as a patient, and I, you know chronic pelvic pain, pain with intercourse, like for a married person, like you probably know like intimacy issues, like there's, they, they very likely could be complex. It's not going to be like something simple necessarily. And as you can imagine for, <laughs> there's so much brokenness in the world and there's a lot of sexual brokenness too. Mm -hmm. And so, um, chronic pelvic pain is a, a, diagnosis or or clinical entity is is very common but like you, you can here's ibuprofen like that doesn't seem adequate yeah like i have to ask you about your relationship and you know people will have <laughs> you know like maybe there's significant infidelity maybe there's there's a history of trauma mm -hmm. like we do a disservice to people by setting up our systems to put them through a assembly line where we try to see as many patients as possible in a day. And for the most part, I would say that is a systems issue. Conventional healthcare systems impose a bottom line, which, you know, you have to pay for the lights and the equipment and the staff, yes. However, like when you make healthcare a business, and it's not primarily a business, right? It, it is a helping profession. When you make it primarily a business, everyone loses. 50% mm. of doctors in, in studies routinely meet criteria for burnout, which is basically the doctors don't want to accept like depression because um, mental health stigma exists and that's a whole other issue um, but they meet criteria for burnout by you know five years if they're in practice about five years similar numbers with med students and uh, residents like like you're depressed about your work okay now you're showing up you have to see 20 to 40 
patients in a day and you have to address the the diabetes that caused their kidney failure now they need dialysis and the fact that they just got out of the hospital um, with a heart attack they have a history of stroke and like their mom died and they feel sad about it and they have a real depression mm-hmm. that's you can't do that in 20 minutes no it's it's, it's like too complex kneeling yeah. people it, uh, it, it drives me absolutely nuts but but yes veranova health i joined them because they're like we're gonna set this up so um we do have adequate time to spend with patients and like i tell my patients if it can be figured out we will figure it out might take three appointments it might take you doing some stuff you don't like like most of us don't like mm-hmm. um until we do um like avoiding con candy blizzards from dairy queen that's it's <laughs> my weakness um or exercising when when you don't feel like it yeah um or going to bed consistently or cutting somebody out of your life who is causing you stress or enabling your addiction or you know like all this stuff mm-hmm. so um i i'm glad to hear you say that because i feel like the pa- patients want what we're trying to offer at veranova and we're trying to build this like organization because i i want to be involved in things that have an impact in the world and how do we change it by people deciding to practice medicine differently by refusing to, you know, comply with the way systems are set up, it may mean that they take less money in their salaries, like, which is also difficult nowadays, believe, believe it or not, for physicians. In general, we have very large revenue um, that we generate or income, you know, streams. But also, we have, on average, I, I believe the most recent numbers are something like 300000 to $350,000 in debt from medical school. Um, so that a lot comes in, but a lot also goes out for, mm-hmm. you know, an average um, physician. Um, not to mention all the professional society fees and related things and the fact that like you don't have time to like do your yard, so like you gotta pay somebody like yeah. 150 bucks a month, uh, or essentially half the cost of like a lawnmower, um, you know stuff like this. But um, but yeah, I mean there's there's probably gonna be some sort of sacrifice that occurs, but um, it's definitely more rewarding to be able to help people like the idealism, like to retain the idealism that most of us go into med school right. with, you know? Yeah. They're Man, broken. I, I really just droned on No, I forever appreciate it. on that. Sorry. No, dude, but, I appreciate it. I mean, you, you're the expert and you've, you've been in the field for so long. So you've seen it, you've been in the system and you've seen the good parts of it. You've seen the bad parts of it. And I think we're all in agreement I can't I can't imagine anyone really saying we need we don't need to make a change in the healthcare system. Right? We all feel that way and I think COVID really highlighted that. We started realizing okay, we now have the most expensive healthcare system in the entire world, but somehow we're the sickest population. Right. It doesn't make any sense, man. 
No, it doesn't. But, I mean, granted, like, you can't always just throw money at something. Of course. Right? Um, but there's, I mean, it's, it's so, so crazy. Like, the layers of, like, financial transactions that, like, occur when you deliver health care that have accrued throughout time. It's, like, ridiculous. Like, Mark Cuban... Um, is trying to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. I saw so, that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so he has a company called Cost Plus Drug Company, and it's I love it because it's transparent, which I think is where you know businesses should be heading. Like, you know, like if a hospital system makes a hundred dollars, let's say, from the work that a physician does, it, and they the, they pay the physician 10 or $20 of that. That doesn't really seem fair. Right. Right? Like, in many industries, somebody should not be getting, like, a whole bunch more than you do for your work. There is an area where that's fair. If, if Ars Longa Media, my media endeavor, was you know, making millions and millions of dollars a year and I paid, like, the people who do the work that enable me to, like, have all this, like, cool, like, projects and and work with these great people like yourself. Um, that To me, that would be wrong, yeah. morally. Um, but, yes, I, I mean, for sure, that something has got to change because something's going to give. And um, I think in large respect, it... it already has and um i i hope that there will be more physicians who will um fight hard to retain the idealism that they go into medicine with Mm -hmm. and that is also kind of why ars longa media i started the first podcast inside the boards because I wanted to help med students study for their board exams. It was 2015. The third wave of podcasting was beginning, and nobody was doing United States Medical Licensing Exam, USMLE prep, through podcast. And I was like, okay, well, I'll do it. Like, this is cool. Like, I, um, I had a very tough time in med school going from philosophy to med school, um, uh, but by second year, I'd figured it out that like doing well on the tests, like you learn a lot by learning to think like a test question writer. So mm. I developed kind of like a system for that. Um, and, and a lot of the practical, you know, reasons were, yes, we want to help you pass or do as do what your best is or meet your goal for score on that exam but the deeper reason was want to give you resources where you can study on the go and so that you have time for life stuff mm. like exercise right cuz you can kind of this is what i did for our, my first step of the three step usmle was i listened to this one dude like edward golion's like classic lectures like these were absolutely golden it's all i listened to when i was in the gym and driving you know 
over and over again this series for like two months leading up to till I basically had it like memorized mm-hmm. and stuff like that, hoping to give people back time so they can have balance, be healthy themselves, physician heal thyself. Um, and then all the other projects with Ars Longa Media in, in large part are because I, I think media is like etymologically, it's like what's handed out. It's like, uh, what's handed on, um, Media has the capacity to change culture. In fact, it's it's one of the few things that that does. Because you, if you can't disseminate a message, like who's gonna know, mm-hmm. right? Um, the the addiction crisis, stigmatization of mental illness, um, the doctor burnout issue. Um, these are things that I'm involved in. Um, with our Zonga media to a certain extent, and that's that's what we want to do, like addressing women's health from a um, root cause place, rather than just giving somebody a like a oral contraceptive pill, which like it imposes a kind of artificial twenty eight day cycle onto all women, and. Not every woman is the same. Not every person is the same. Mm-hmm. And while those medications, estrogen and progesterone usually, are very common and do pretty much solve the issue in one sense, like you're bleeding, here's an OCP, you're going to bleed less and on more of a regular schedule. You have chronic pain from ovarian cysts, here's a pill. This is going to reduce the types of the frequency of like cysts you have. Um, You have pain with intercourse. Uh, We give you a pill. The likelihood is you have endometriosis that will kind of hold it back. Endometriosis is like when the lining of the uterus, the endometrium, is not inside the uterus. It like actually. It's been found in like every part of the body. It's weird, like except the spleen, like mm. I think even the brain. Um, so that's odd. Um, but we approach women's health from this kind of we can fix the thing you came in for, right, without getting to the root cause in, in many cases. And what that does is I think it it stagnates the <laughs> progress of our field, frankly. Um, and if you, you know, put a young woman who's like 14, 15 on an oral contraceptive pill and she goes until 32 years old before she wants to have a child, well, intuitively you can imagine if you're imposing this textbook cycle onto someone, you don't know if she has any of these problems. And now she's 32. Now she wants to have a baby. She comes off these pills and come to find out she has some issue we've been masking. Mm. All right. You're getting close to 35 when women have a drop in their um, ability to get pregnant and carry pregnancies you know you mentioned biological clock earlier um 
and if we had investigated earlier likely could have saved a lot of heartache and had more time to address issues of you know like infertility which is you know like one in six ish couples deal with that at some point yeah um so so yeah yeah come see me at veranova (laughs) (laughs) a long-winded way to to plug yourself a little bit i like it yeah and it's funny too i've you know i'm at the age 26 where i'm seeing a lot of my friends and even my wife who have really started to dig into what birth control actually does to the human body and they start to recognize yes it is masking some of my other issues but it's causing other ones so for example and i i hope carly's going to be okay with me saying this but we can always edit it yeah exactly um but a couple years ago this is probably end of 2021 i would say this is when she started to realize like i need to get off birth control where she would go into work every day the brain fog was on another level the mood swings would be all over the place one day she'd be super happy another day she'd feel like just down in the pits man just terrible and she started to do some research and start starting to understand that i don't know if i necessarily need this like i i can track my cycle i can understand when i am ovulating when i oh, am oh really <laughs> Dude, this is crazy because yeah. a lot of what we are trying to do with Veranova mm-hmm. is I mentioned I'm Catholic, right? So yeah. most people know Catholics are not big on birth control. Yeah. Um, but that isn't like the entirety of why I'm not big on birth control. And it's exactly for this reason. So part of um, Veranova's kind of uh, impetus was for exactly this fact the listening to the experience of of women and and couples who are um trying to get pregnant or mm-hmm. avoid pregnancy but like you you don't want to see like your your partner suffer and even if like let's face it if a dude had a minor headache or nausea from a pill they got we're not going to take no, it never. like no nah, i'm done Right. But we expect women to do this. And I I think that's kind of crazy because, yes, exactly. The fertility awareness based methods of um, birth control, they are surprisingly effective. They're they're when used right, at least as effective as like condoms at preventing Mm -hmm. pregnancy. Um, Definitely as effective as progesterone only pills, mini pills. Um, cause like you have to take that within like a 30 minute window, um, each day or it doesn't work to prevent pregnancy. Like, mm. I mean, I don't know if you're on any medications or supplements, but you probably don't take them within a tight 30 minute window no. and you probably practically couldn't. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so Veranova, we're trying to, um, <laughs> and yes, yeah, shameless plug, but, but like I, I I really, when I got with the, the people in this organization, I feel like they really got it in terms of how I wanted to be as a doctor. Mm. And I mean, it's not going to be for everyone. Like some people will think it's crazy to take a more natural approach. But the fifth vital sign for women should really be the 
ovulation. It should yeah. be the menstrual cycle because yeah. if they're regularly producing an egg, right, um, that is evidence of a whole bunch of brain chemicals and glands working in unity. It is a sign of health. So, yeah, we're trying to bring modern methods of fertility awareness to people within a medical context rather than, you know, these um, more uh, simply just uh, peer support type um, methods of natural family planning is usually mm -hmm. the, the term given. And it's not just religious people. Like, during the pandemic, um, I believe... The old statistics, if you look at James Trussell's con contraceptive technology, which I believe is published every year, um, it goes through all of like what we know about birth control, what are the side effects, like who is, what's the appropriate appropriate medical eligibility criteria to take this or that or avoid yeah. this that. Prior years to the pandemic, it was probably around one one and a half percent, but I believe it's now like three percent um or at least close to that it's definitely gone up by at least 50 percent of women who are like okay i can notice different signs more than just bleeding like that's the obvious one yeah like that's the one where men start getting uncomfortable <laughs> in conversation um i wish i could be embarrassed but i can't anymore i've completely <laughs> lost that ability um and but that's that's not really the central event of the menstrual cycle. It's it's ovulation. That's the mm. whole point. So, but sorry, I just I find this no. exciting because honestly, outside of like Catholics, like, and I feel that a lot of people don't appreciate exactly what it sounds like your wife was saying or experiencing. Yeah. Because also, you can't really say that. You know, like you can't say I have brain fog because then. You go to your doctor, and they'll be honestly a lot of times kind of dismissive, like, "Oh, okay." And they well, were, they were in the same situation I'm, with her. I know. This yeah, is another was, problem with healthcare. Yeah, it was like, uh, you know, no, it's probably not due to that. It's blah blah blah. And we decided to take our our health into our own hands, and I think that's such an important piece to do for anyone listening. Right? Well, it's your primary responsibility, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. And yeah, exactly. so just to go back to the story a little bit. It took her a long time to really get back to normal after going off the pill. You know, it took a good six months for her to, like, get her menstrual cycle back and everything. And so with you saying, you know, people are on it from 15 years old to 32. And then they go, I actually do want to have kids now. Let me just come off it and I can have kids. It's not how it works. And we thought the same thing, too, is like, all right, we need to nip this in the bud right away from when we do have kids she's healthy she can you know have yeah. the baby and we're, we're fertile all those things are still set in place and i think we do a disservice to just push birth control oh you have bad periods here's birth control oh you have this wrong with you here's birth control and we're i mean i remember in high school 14 15 years old these girls are going on it yeah yeah and 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 we say birth control right um because that's the medication class it's mm. estrogen and progesterone. Your body makes it. If you give it, it out from the outside at certain levels, a side effect is 
suppression of fertility. Mm. But estrogen and progesterone do more than just develop an egg or help a baby implant in the wall of the, the uterus and grow and all this stuff. Um, they have actually a, a wide range of effects within the body, including on the bones in the brain. Like, we know this. We know it's it's like insulin. Insulin is famous for bringing down your blood sugar, right, from your pancreas. But insulin also does things to the ovary and a bunch of other systems within your body. That's what I'm saying. We don't know as much as I think we act. And, and you know, but we're just two dudes. So, yeah, like, yeah. I think women... <laughs> And now I hesitate to say this, too, because I don't <laughs> want to be told, like, how can you give advice to women? Um, I mean, I would say because I'm a like in women's health as an OBGYN, um, definitely not telling women what to do. I think the, a smart man learns that you can't really do that. You know? <laughs> no. Like they're, yeah. they're kind of often telling us what to do. Mm. Um, but but they should speak out more about these things to their physicians because it it's important and like you can learn and i bet we can learn a lot more about different disease states the more women are off the pill and tracking signs of their cycle mm. like fem fertility education medical management is a, an organization um as far as modern methods of fertility awareness go i think they're the best they you know they have hundreds of thousands of of cycles um from users saying like okay i bled this long this is how much i also got headaches on day 25 the length of my cycle is this you know there's mm -hmm. data here and that will have implications on what we think about um diseases and who knows like it might you know there might be a pattern that is discoverable through big data you know mm -hmm. analyzing this stuff that says oh someone who has this pattern probably has polycystic ovarian syndrome Interesting. or you know some other issue like, yeah wow this is a really interesting way this turned like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny too because she's a a power lifter and she's a runner and super into athletics so she's very tuned in with her own body and how yeah. it feels day to day and she's very intuitive about that and the way she trains and she is also aware of of her strength during the menstrual cycle and understanding, okay, I'm going to feel this way when I do start to ovulate or maybe seven days after whatever that time frame looks like. She's aware of it because she's tracked it. She's, she's starting to understand it and she's, she's so smart with it, with her training. And that's what I love to see. Like, you know, that's, that's the field I'm in is training other people. I like to think of myself as, as corny as it is, is like that first line soldier to the healthcare system, you know, of preventative care and really making sure that people are getting in those things that you talked about, those simple things. I saw this acronym that, that really sits well with me and I try to push this on my clients as SHIELD. So it's sleep. Um, damn, why did I just forget H? <laughs> sleep. Um, lack of sleep. Lack of sleep. The no, eyes. I'm saying you, lack of sleep. Maybe that's why. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're right. What the hell is H? What hell? No, it's not health. 
sleep, blah, 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 interact, exercise, and diet. I'll think of H by the time we hop off this podcast. But it's it's so important to get those basic necessities of life. And that's why I love what I do is because I can give the people those foundations of health and understanding that, okay, you just go to the gym, you do 30 minutes of exercise, you're going to feel so much better afterwards. And if you continue to never go outside. Well, at least if you do it a couple weeks. Yeah, that's true too. That's true too. But if you stay inside all day, you never see sunlight and you're always feeling like shit. And then you go to the doctor and say, Doc, I'm just depressed. I feel terrible all the time. I don't know what's going on. It's just something's messed up with my brain. They don't take the time because they got 15 minutes with you. They go, okay, here's an SSRI. Go for it. You you should feel fine. You should be all right. And not to say those don't help in certain situations, but at the same time. They definitely help. Yeah. Right? And, But all medications potentially have side effects. Yeah usually have some sort of side effects. Like the goal of a medication is to right what's wrong in your body. Mm-hmm. And that's how we need to be thinking about it. But I don't think we necessarily do. Instead, it's like, well, we do know that if you're depressed, your serotonin levels are on average lower. Here's more serotonin. Okay, serotonin is like a neurotransmitter that like it acts throughout the brain and the gut and like it's widespread availability of the the receptors for serotonin but it's it's got to have an effect now definitely medication or other forms of treatment that are drugs or procedures or neurostimulation are necessary in the armamentarium of treating depression or any issue but like sunlight you mentioned i mean there's good evidence that like you do 10 minutes of sunlight first thing in the morning or 20 minutes if it's cloudy like it has a measurable impact on your mood attention and focus like it's kind of a long growing list of things mm-hmm. we know yeah I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) It's the simple stuff, though, that people don't want to do. And maybe that's more of a societal problem than it is a healthcare system problem of you want a quick fix. Everything is so easy to get nowadays. We don't really have to work for our food or even work to find a mate anymore. You know, we have the dating apps that we can just swipe, swipe, swipe. You go out to dinner, then you hook up and that's it. Right. And uh, it's got to be something more. Yeah. Right. Ease of it's access. Yeah. You, know? you, you would think so. I'm curious from your perspective, because you are a religious person. And I've heard this before. I've heard this argument before that we need religion and science together. Do you have that mindset towards your practice or do you believe in that at all? Um, well, I would say that. So I gave a paper in med school um which comes first, the Catholic or the physician? I think that was the title. Mm. And my argument would be that for a religious dimension of life, um, that it has to take center stage because it is the basis of 
one's value system, how you see your place in the world, and most importantly, how you see your dependency on, like, God. You know, the, the, the gift nature of existence. So you, you can't really separate your most fundamental core beliefs from anything you do. Mm. Um, you can bracket them out. And, like, I, I don't see, like, a patient comes in, like, it's like that Jim Gaffigan little sketch he talks about. Like, there's nothing more uncomfortable than somebody, like, talking about religion, like, in, in the wrong context or something. Like, he's like, this would happen even to the Pope. You know, it's like, hey, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And I'd like you not to. Like, that would be even the Pope's response outside <laughs> of a, a church. Um, but, I mean, that's another probably problemless society, the inability to talk about big things like religion because people disagree so what um fundamental belief may you know your fun your core value system may be contain this thing or that thing have this affiliation with this religious group or not but but there's like a commonality to it that is human first and foremost and given to us i think by i mean i think by like our creator um but I do try to practice medicine as a Catholic, as a Christian. What does that mean? Well, as you may know, Jesus was huge, like, in terms of, like, healing people. Like, most people know, like, that is kind of, well, it's kind of his thing. The divine physician is a, a term applied to him. Mm. Um, he even has some great lines, like, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Um, and so part of Christian, (sighs) Christian life experience, culture, mission throughout history has been concerned for the poor, the sick, the marginalized, right? Um, what does that mean? It means like literally caring for them. Like, oh, you're ill it's not like this is not necessarily an opportunity to be like you know do you want to talk about jesus it could be because some people do and if somebody wants to talk about something religious i'm not gonna be like well i can't tell you you know like i I can't tell you my personal beliefs because i do all the time i'll be like like if somebody asks me my opinion on something that there's a fundamental disagreement about i will say look I'm Catholic, and so, I mean, you can imagine this comes up tons of different ways within the context of OBGYN. Um, I will say what I believe, but I, like, care for people enough, and I'd, I'd like to think that I'm respectful enough that, you know, if we do disagree, doctor, patient, it's not going to affect the therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. Um and I definitely fight to ensure that, like, the practices I'm involved in um, don't have things that I think are antithetical to Christian belief in a Christian way of viewing the mission of healthcare, which is to extend the healing ministry of Jesus. So, like, if you're trying to just, like, make money off people's illness— you know, and you get like kickbacks for, I don't know, prescribing this 
drug or you know if if it becomes all about money that's not what practicing medicine should be for a christian mm. um if it means you know there's there's also huge moral issues on which there's disagreement like whether or not contraception is a good for the human being um the that is a philosophical question but there is also probably a scientific aspect to that and if we get all like weirded out like oh most of the people don't like you know birth control pills are a catholic therefore it's a catholic thing that's not logical but yeah. in medicine you can't bring it up like mm. in OBGYN it is difficult to even raise that question especially as a doctor because and and you don't want to impose your beliefs on anyone right, right? like uh John Paul II um he said the church never imposes she always proposes and mm. I, I thought that was a good way to kind of put in in something that a lot of religious people need to hear as well like a lot of times Jesus didn't lead with like repent and believe in the gospel like he did but oftentimes it was I'm gonna heal you first I'm gonna like make it so that you're restored to physical wholeness Right, So you don't have brain fog, blindness. You don't have things that make it difficult for you to achieve what human beings are supposed to fulfill as part of our nature, our excellence. Mm. Um, and then he would talk to them about himself, I guess, <laughs> uh, in, the, in that case. But, but yeah, I mean, healing, healing, you know, physicians, I think, stopped it's probably sounds archaic for a physician to think of themselves as a healer, right? But that kind of is what we want when we go to the doctors. I mean, certainly, like, you know, you have a wart that needs burned off. Like, not as big a deal as if you have a terminal cancer that is going to take you at a young age while you have young children mm -hmm. and involve suffering from the time of your diagnosis until the three months when your life will be over and but and all sorts of things in between so i don't know if that answers your question because i have a lot of thoughts about this i yeah and it's hard for me to articulate i mean like, for instance, I'm Catholic, so not real big on abortion, mm -hmm. all right? This goes back to bioethics. A lot of what people call an abortion, well, it's it's not a good, like, term because there's a legal definition, there is a medical definition, and there is a philosophical or, or um, moral understanding definition of this. Mm -hmm. And so there are things that medically would be called an abortion which philosophically would not be and so people think ah oh, catholics are against abortion therefore in this particular case um you know i take early onset life-threatening uterine infection this gets pretty complex but there are definitely cases in which 
you would induce labor, which would result in the death of a fetus, for instance, which would be considered an abortion, but which are not counted as such in a moral dimension by even Catholics because the difference in definitions. So, patients have come to me. Hey, I want to terminate my pregnancy. Um, this is what I'm going to do. Um, that's my plan. Um, and that is not to me an opportunity to be like, oh, that's bad, right? Um, but I, but at the same time, it should not be a place where a, a doctor should feel they couldn't offer their perspective, right? Yeah. It should be transparent. Mm -hmm. But like when you trust someone, like it's a relationship, the doctor-patient relationship. And if you have a good relationship, sometimes you want to hear the perspective that challenges you. Yeah. And sometimes, frankly, pursuing a treatment, an action, whatever, might not be good for that person because of who they are. What might be better is to help them in other ways. Like, there are women who have six, seven children, single moms, so poor, who it seems sensible, like, we need to have access to abortion for women because they can't provide for their kids. Okay, but if it were just that simple, then why the hell aren't all of us in society rallying around these people to help them, like, through really different... Like, uh, honestly, some of these women are, like, really inspiring. Like, I mean... Look, I could barely take care of the baby alone. He's five months um, <laughs> for long periods of time. But there are women who do this with, you know, five kids under six years old or something. Mm. It's rare, but um, the, there definitely needs to be more support, not only from society, but from especially the church, if we're going to talk about, or, you know, a faith, faith communities, if we're going to talk about... Like, we don't think abortion's a moral good. Okay, great. Should it be legal or illegal? Totally different question. If it's not a moral good, then what are we doing to ensure people can make the choice that is good? And which oftentimes, it, it seems to me, at least from hearing a lot of stories and having conversations around this, you know, in, in the exam room, that a lot of women feel compelled or forced to to make this choice because we have failed them as a community and i mean i this this is granted very complex topic it is um very contentious but i think what a lot of it should boil down to is that Big decisions, whether to get married, to have a child, to terminate a pregnancy, to accept chemotherapy, or to say, I don't want chemotherapy, like lots of huge, impactful things in life, they need to be dealt with not on a podcast, yeah. not necessarily in our media, 
to a certain extent, yeah, we, these should be talked about and we should think through these things. But we should also be able to talk about them, which can we do that nowadays? I don't know. Yeah, um, it's like immediately right away. Of, like, oh, I disagree. You hate women. If yeah. you don't like abortions, you hate women. And it's like, well, this is a much more complex issue than you lead on right. to believe. Yeah. And we got to be able to talk about it. And it should be yeah. dealt with in the context of family, friends, trusted advisors, clergy people, therapists, right? These are the primary spheres at which we need to build our lives and community and deal with all big issues. So I don't even know how we got on that. And I am sure that (laughs) you should, if we take a clip out, right? (laughs) Male OBGYN on abort or on abortion or something. Saying how terrible abortion uh, is. Yes, exactly. Christ- Hold on, Catholic OBGYN, uh, male OBGYN. And I, you know, I went through an OBGYN residency, yeah. so like I'm, I've heard a lot of it, but I, but I don't care because I know every like every patient I've seen, um, even if I disagree with them on a big subject, like abortion whether or not anyone should get an abortion and definitely don't want to get into exceptions but in general let's say um i know that they would either be surprised that i am so like that i believe abortion is an intrinsic moral evil um like murder would be an intrinsic moral evil. It's like not something you could ever do and it be good. You have to make distinctions, though. What I mean is abortion, in the philosophical sense, is never a moral good. Mur- like, sometimes you have to kill someone, right? And it's not murder. Like, there are distinctions here that look on the surface like things are the same but they're not yeah um but i know my patients would like i think they would say oh wow he's i hope they would say i I don't know leave me an online review (laughs) um that you know he's compassionate and like i had no idea he was so like strongly opposed to you list the various things Mm -hmm. um And I think that's the way it should be, because if, you know, if somebody does come to me and wants to know my opinion, it's got to be an appropriate time. And there has to be a level of trust. Why should you just trust me? Because I have an MD after my name. Right. First 20 minutes. Sometimes it shocks me that patients do. I mean, I. Not that I'm untrustworthy. Yeah, like I'm yeah. competent. The state gives me a license to practice medicine. You know, I have the the accolades or or you know um, certifications and stuff. Um, but when it comes to to big issues, like it, you gotta have trust before you like broach in anything sensitive. Yeah. Like even this is another thing. Like people do not like to have their genitals examined the things we cover you don't like it i don't like it right people don't okay so standard kind of like obgyn practice like you it's like going to the dentist you go to the dentist you can 
pretty much expect, you know, to if you you know, you have tooth pain, you pretty much expect a drill, right? Like that's one of their go-to tools. If you go to a gynecologist, you can pretty much expect to have like a, a vaginal exam, frankly. Um, but in in my mind, like that's not always necessary. Like we do tons of things like routinely that don't have like why like the, it's not going to change anything if we do mm. or don't do it um or like you just met a person and like you don't know if they're a creeper let's be real like yeah there are some OBGYNs who have abused their positions um and done horrible things to like women they're like never going to be like comfortable like getting their health care now yeah. and i mean we have procedures in place like if you're a woman like definitely no honestly i think no one but certainly not like a male should ever examine like a woman alone in an exam room that's like for an intimate exam it's kind of that's weird right yeah so just if you're out there like if that's happening that's a little weird mm. um but like uh, there's I just change my practice. Like, there's lots of times where I'm like, you know what? I'm going to talk to this person. Basically, just talk like, yeah. for 45 minutes. I'm going to try to understand why they're here, what they want, what I can do for them, mm -hmm. and, you know, where where to go next. But, like, I don't have to check a box. Like, yeah, we probably need to do an exam. Do we need to do it right now? Probably not. We probably schedule that for next time mm -hmm. but you know you just every person's different yeah you have to meet them where they're at and like i've had patients who've had sexual trauma and i just like usually ask something to that effect like do you do you have difficulty with like pelvic exams um for any reason or you know i don't mm -hmm. know how i usually something like that and like it's pretty common for somebody to say yes or to disclose like a history of um, sexual trauma. And I'm like, well, would it make you feel more comfortable if, you know, uh, the, the a female did your exam? Mm -hmm. And if a female is it, and sometimes it does. Some women really care, like uh, some men really care. They don't wanna have this, you know, male or female be their doctor. Okay, that's fine. Right. If we can accomplish what we need to in investigating it, like let's be person centered in everything we do in healthcare. That's 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 what that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. That's what I think we all should do. Yeah, and I, I think I even take that in my own practice where it's how can I create an environment where they feel open and comfortable to share what's really going on with them? Yeah. Because if they feel like they're being attacked or they're being judged or they feel just uncomfortable in general by your presence, they're not going to feel like, oh, I can share with this person what's really gone on in my life because they're going to judge me. They're going to make me feel bad about talking about whatever's going on. And now you're completely negating the whole purpose of you meeting together, which is to get to the root cause, which is to help that person. And I think it's such an important piece. And it shows a lot about you as a person too and your character of taking those extra steps of saying, okay, let me make sure I talk to this person before I just go into the, you know, a, a really invasive 
procedure or even just entire you know scope of of what you're looking at it's it's really really important to do that and i think it makes people feel safe and heard and and just comfortable in general to take their health in their own hands you know yeah because that's what we want like ideally you never come to see us like we labor every day as physicians to eradicate like the thing you know disease Mm -hmm. that um people come to us for like to to end our own existence in some sense right and that would be ideal in an ideal world nobody needs any medication you know yeah most of us are on like one or two but it should not be the first line and we should not jump to just yeah these like checklists and this like robotic type of and i'm not saying all like my colleagues are in medicine are like this but like this is supposed to be a unique personal type of relationship mm-hmm. built on trust and I, we've i think we've just in many respects lost that there's a lot of distrust for the healthcare system i hate to hear it like uh, one example would be vaccines like um i don't know how getting a vaccination getting a particular vaccination like the COVID one became a political issue on which people are divided and in, in, and like so mistrustful. Um, I think that everybody should have a right to put into their, to understand what they're putting into their bodies, to refuse to put something into their bodies for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, like that we should have that autonomy but dude, like somebody says, I don't want to get the vaccine. Um, in conventional healthcare environment, it's like pounce. Like if you're a doctor and say I didn't get vaccinated, like people think you're crazy. And some of those people are crazy. Let's be fair, okay? <laughs> but to me, I'm like, that's a good example. If a patient talked to me about vaccines, says I don't want to have my baby vaccinated at birth or to receive a vitamin k shot or i don't want to get this vaccine and i respectfully that's that's fine but let me tell you why i disagree with you Mm -hmm. right um here are the reasons now is this going to be like the end of our relationship is this going to cause a rift i i don't it doesn't have to um and i i try to approach it that way i'm like look, we, you know, like I got vaccinated for COVID. Vaccines are kind of why it's like not as big of a thing. Um, Do I think people should get it? Yes, I do. I think for many reasons. Do I have patients, friends, other colleagues, people involved in in various areas of, you know, influence that that I work? who didn't get the vaccine and did so for a moral reason, religious reason, fear reason, um, scientific reason, um, they believe, yeah, I I do. Um, Do you believe in the validity of those reasons, in your personal opinion? um, Sometimes no. Um, In Catholic circles, um, there is a a segment of people, um, I hope, my parents don't care because um, it, it might be them um, that don't want to take the vaccine because um, 
uh, and not just uh, certain COVID vaccines, but certain vaccines in general, because the way they were developed depended on um, uh, the uh, cell culture lines from uh, aborted fetuses. Mm -hmm. And so in their conscience, what they feel is that by taking something like that, they are participating in something that they believe is an intrinsic moral evil, right? Abortion. Um, I have a different perspective on that. Um, however, you can't really argue with somebody's conscience. It is the, like, there is, it is essentially one's connection to God and responsibility to God, right? Um, and you can try to inform somebody's conscience. And so to approach this vaccine issue, like, for instance, um, you have to look at how much your participation in any thing that you believe is morally evil, um, wrong, um, contributes to that thing. And so for the fact that it's not like there is an abortion industry that takes fetuses and somehow like turns their parts into vaccines to be very kind of like crass about this. Um, but there were, I believe, two um, fetal um, uh, abortuses that were uh, used, like there are cell lines that have been continuously promulgated or propagated um, and that they grow um, the vectors for certain vaccines in. Hmm. Um, to me, I think there's a theological argument. Like we could say that by these two human persons um, giving up their lives, like m there is there is meaning to their sacrifice, almost like a martyrdom for the fact that they are, you know, curing and saving the lives of so many um that definitely just speculative and would probably be an argument i need to develop more but you know in the catholic moral tradition there is cooperation in evil your the extent of your cooperation in evil determines the moral responsibility that you have you can formally cooperate in evil where you're like an ss officer trying to exterminate Jewish people mm -hmm. in line with Hitler. Um, uh, there is material cooperation in evil where you have a part in it um, and yours could be an essential part, immediate, or immediate uh, material cooperation in evil, or it could be more removed. So, like... You work at a factory that makes the little armbands that military officers back in Hitler's Germany wore. Are you responsible? Do you participate in that? Some people are going to say, yep, that is too close in my conscience for me to have this job, right? If you sweep the floor, if you, you know, clean the ORs where... Uh, abortions are performed and you believe abortion is a moral evil 
Like, are, are you going to refuse to do that? Are you going to bake a cake for a couple that is the same sex and you don't believe that they should have that type of relationship? Like, these are all questions, and in many respects, people will have different legitimate, like, responses to them. Sometimes they're entirely wrong-headed, like slavery. We all agree that's not possible. Like, that is intrinsically evil. You cannot um, enslave people. You cannot sell yourself even into slavery under our law. Um, so... I mean, I honestly, I try to talk people into vaccines. I think it's a good idea. All meds have side effects. Um, some people should avoid them. But also, I'm going to respect a patient if they're going to go get an abortion, if they're not going to get a vaccine, if they're going to be like, nah, doc, not doing that. Are you sure? It's, I think, the best thing for you. Nope, not going to do it. Well, I'm not going to continually... Yeah. Try to push this on you. Yeah, I may gently like you know, and I'm going to bring this up later because I I don't think we adequately, you know, addressed the issue or, and and sometimes honestly, there's there's a a level of, um, there's a disparate level of knowledge on many things, um, that physicians have about the the body and disease that patients don't. Surprisingly, there's. <laughs> sometimes where I feel like patients know more than me. Um, actually, that that not usually on diseases or their treatments. Um, sometimes on diseases, and but also on a lot of other things. Um, so, so yeah, this dude, this has been great. Like I, I feel like I don't get to have conversations. Yeah, this is ever. why I love this. Yeah, I know. That's why yeah. I started doing podcasting yeah. too. Like yeah. you're, you're reminding me because I haven't. It's it's one of the only times in life where you don't have any other distraction, like a TV. You go out to a bar, you have your phone, everything's away. Your headphones are on. You got the mic on. But I want to go back. I want to just put a button on this conversation because looking back on it, I had a lot of friends who were in athletics at the time, so. It was around the time when there weren't any vaccines, everything shut down, there were no sports. I mean, you remember that whole debacle. Not and fun. Not fun at all. It sucked. But we started to go back into sports. And I had a friend who didn't want to get the vaccine. He was hesitant about it. You know, all those things about heart conditions and you, you were seeing these guys kind of fall down in the middle of sports. And not to say that wouldn't happen. I, I don't really know the research too much to even comment on it. But there was a legitimate A fear. lot of doctors don't either just. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, <laughs> I think there but there was a legitimate fear and doubt in the, uh, you know, the effectiveness of the vaccine in general. So there were these athletes who decided like I, I don't want to put this into my body I feel like I'm very healthy I feel like you know you look at the people who were dying from it who had all these core morbid morbidities all the things we talked about earlier yeah. terribly lifestyle unhealthy diseases. lifestyle diseases yeah. who were dying from this and you're asking a young 20 year old who's probably in the prime of his life in terms of cardiovascular health the muscle on his body all these things he's extremely healthy but we're forcing all these kids to get vaccines so they can play 
Right. And I think that is in my mind where we really went wrong with this whole thing is it was, there was no talk about any of the lifestyle decisions. It was just one solution to this problem. It was take a vaccine, regardless of the effectiveness of it. We completely disregarded all these other things. And then we looked down upon people who did make that decision. Exactly. And it was messed up. And it was, it was one of those things where we didn't take the context into consideration like I said, you have these young 20-year-old athletes who have no – why are you taking a COVID vaccine? It's like a flu shot. You know what I mean? It's it's the same thing in my personal opinion. And, uh, yeah, I know a lot of kids who still feel really bad about it. Um, there were definitely some kids who got extremely sick from the vaccine for a couple of days after. Even, you know, I, I know a couple of friends who were like a week or two sick that took him out from practice for a long time. And, you know, I, I don't know how involved or like how, how much you know about college sports or even just professional sports. Nothing. When you're, when you're out for a week or two, you, that competition, you lose that and you could lose your spot and you work so hard for that point And it was devastating to see that. So I just wanted to kind of share my opinion and share my, experience with it and some of the athletes that I saw really well, have me, a hard time with it. Let me say this. Mm. Just because you're not a doctor doesn't mean your opinion is not valid. Yeah. And I feel like that is the attitude that happened during COVID with vaccines. I find that problematic. Just saying that probably like definitely in 2020, 2021, People would hear that and be like, oh, this is a vaccine denier. No, I got the vaccine. I think in general people should. Um, but I also think people should have like autonomy and, and yeah. freedom. And that includes the freedom to be wrong. Maybe they're not. Because we also, whatever we believe, should keep in mind, we too can be wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like we're finite. Mm-hmm. Even physicians. Um definitely physicians yeah uh, from the ones i know but yeah well patrick man i appreciate you coming on it's been a great conversation man i got to know you a lot more yeah, and yeah I'm, I'm glad we did this yeah real. a lot of information you shared i'm excited to listen back and and hear some more about women's health men's health just everything in the whole health sector so dude you should get on here and and talk with your wife about the whole birth control experience like, okay like for real i think that would be a very important conversation to have. Um, and I mean, there isn't, there, there aren't a lot of people doing it well and you ask good questions and you know, you're not tendentious. You're not like, like I don't really know what you believe on a bunch of things, right? I can't pin you, which means you have an open mind. Yeah, definitely. You're docile to the truth. Like it sounds like you want to do what's right and not that you want to be right which exactly. is how a lot of people are and it just drives me yeah nuts <laughs> yeah it's the worst it's the worst I, i've i think i've learned that being in the relationship with my wife is i mean i think i knew it beforehand but it's really been highlighted with her where we're a team unit right i'm not trying to be the most perfect person or trying to always be right in every situation or be the smartest in the room it's like, I, I just want to make sure that we're happy together. We're 
tackling our goals and we're living a life that's fulfilled and has purpose and all these things. So yeah, dude, I, I, I that's why I love doing this. Cause I think like you mentioned it earlier with me, media, even if it's two people that listen to this conversation, I think I have the possibility to impact those two people positively yeah. and give them information on how to live a better life. And I think that's so important nowadays and we don't see it enough because we see, you know, we see these street interviews asking, how many bodies do you have? You know, right. all these stupid questions and it drives me nuts. And yeah. it's like, we don't see enough of my generation and even probably even your generation with the millennials of people trying to make a difference in the world. And, and I don't know if it's because we've moved away from religion, if we've moved away from all these other things. I would argue. Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I think, I think, I think a religion in itself it's funny. I had this conversation with Randy. He might've told you, but I feel like people who have been, been, have been placed in my life lately to really highlight the importance of faith in God. Yeah. And although I'm not necessarily religious right now, I'm starting to realize the importance of it and and how much, yeah. (laughs) Why do you, why do you say that? Um, because you, you may find a much, much bigger world than you ever thought. And mm-hmm. once the lid is lifted off of it, like you can't really go back. I mean, I'm I'm kind of joking. Like, be careful. Like, like this. It happens to a lot of people. And like, sorry, being religious isn't as crazy as a lot of people would want you to believe. Like, people believe in aliens now as a scientific claim when 30 years ago everybody who posited the existence of non-human intelligence was written off as the crazy one yeah it's just, the world is weird but yeah. we should definitely have one more of these and yeah. i'm going to send you a priest yeah a priest to have a conversation with yeah That'd that's going to be really cool i'm excited for to, that yeah you can take up more religious stuff and Religion and exercise. What's the connection? Yeah. And I just had a recent conversation with somebody too. <laughs> Religion next. That's funny. But uh, I think we have this preconceived notion of what religious people look like in our head. Maybe not you because you are Catholic, but a lot of no, people. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. You, you think of, you know, <laughs> Ned Flanders, right? Yeah, they got yeah. their, their shirts tucked in, their belt buckles high and. Have you you have a second to talk about Jesus? You know those type right. of people. Yeah, yeah. But it's your everyday guy in the street. You know it's your powerlifter in the gym who's got tattoos all over his arms, who looks like a savage. But he's the guy who meditates and prays every morning right. to be grateful and to be present and to be a good father and a good husband. And these things, these practices, prayer, all this, serve so much purpose and serve so much good in people's lives. I think it's so arrogant to just overlook that and go, well, you can't prove it. Like we're human beings. We, we're only limited to our own perception and our own brain power. Right. We, we think we know everything in the world when we're on earth. There's this huge universe, probably multi universes at this point now. I know, right. And it's, it's crazy, man. But yeah. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. I, I, I think uh, we should, you, you know, I want to do a podcast called Shitty Christians. Um, the The title's intentionally provocative. Everybody who hears it thinks that it would be something that would just, like, bash, like, Christians. So, like, yeah. 
Okay, fine. Then I, what I'm saying is that people have experience of, you know, shitty Christians. Um, but the attitude that the Christian ought to have is, is that of St. Paul, who in um, Philippians 3.8, maybe, um, that flood has me real tired. Uh, waking up this morning, sort of. Um, he, he talks about counting all his works, all his human efforts to be the perfect person, to follow all the moral commandments. That is so much skubala in Greek, which is a colloquial term for feces, which means it could reasonably tr- be translated as shit. So I'm just saying, like, you could use that term. And so having the attitude that I am not perfect, like, mm-hmm. I'm shitty at this by myself, alone, I think is the attitude that you will find amongst people who have an authentic relationship with the divine, <laughs> with the cr- their creator, um, and aren't the ones who are wagging their fingers and judging in the sense in which that is wrong. Um, others, those people are just, you know, there's, we, I don't want anything to do with those like crazy people either. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, yeah. you might not be religious, but I bet we would get along. Like, even if we disagree on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Because our attitudes are, you know, open-minded right and oriented towards what's right or the truth so i really want to do that podcast randy hates the idea um (laughs) and so does a lot of so do a lot of people i've brought up to but i think it could be cool to have conversations with people um about you know shitty things christians have done and how that's not necessarily reflective of modern conversations on religion from people who disagree. I just I think that could could be cool. And I think those are the people you want to listen. Correct. Yeah, who you want to bring in. Yes. And a lot of my co religionists too who like need to hear like, you know, not everybody's life is as tidy as yours or as you think the ideal should be. Yeah. There's a lot of tattooed like scary looking people who do drugs occasionally who sin in all sorts of ways which you would disapprove of but in your high and mightiness like what sin is worse because wasn't the primordial sin of satan pride yes it was so i don't know mm. but but yeah, this this has been good. Thanks, yeah, man. I absolutely. appreciate it. We'll do it again. Absolutely, man. We have a lot more to talk about. Appreciate you, Patrick. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Peace, man.
never switch up. Stay in my lane, nigga, even when I'm lit up. Fellas in the metal, baby, we don't gotta settle. Maybe we can get it poppin' with a couple of your friends. Every now and then I'll catch them looking out the corner of my eye like they ain't never seen a nigga with some dress. Thoughts from about me. Everybody wanna talk, but nobody talkin' to me. I just wanna speak about the pain without the agony. I'm just tryna go and touch the grass without the allergies. I can't even count how many times I had to ask these niggas not to play with him. Everybody wanna seem like they're living out the dream. It's always about the green since we talked about the green.